The Athletic. Hello, welcome back to the Zonal Marking Euros 2020 preview podcast. I say welcome back because this episode is previewing groups D, E and F. The preview episode for groups A, B and C went out yesterday and I think you're smart enough to know where you can find that if you haven't listened already. Maybe you're the sort of person that wants to do things in reverse order and we respect that as well. We being myself, Ali Maxwell, and with me, Michael Cox and Tom Warville from The Athletic. Michael, you've already done some serious work previewing the Euros in written form. Do you enjoy the amount of research that you have to do watching all of these national teams and trying to work out how they might set up ahead of the Euros is that the sort of research and written work that you do with relish yeah I must say I really enjoy it uh, the only slight thing was obviously I was watching a few matches behind well, a lot of matches behind closed doors um, which I do find slightly difficult but yeah I think it's great it's just um, I just think it's exciting to watch new teams that you you know we're not watching week in week out um, and yeah can't wait for the tournament now well I know that Tom feels the same way although as mentioned in the last episode Tom you've been working on something that has just about killed you I think in terms of output and we might need to charge you up again before the tournament actually starts but I must say that there's a lot of people who unfairly I think think or would suggest Tom that you spend your day looking at charts graphs and and radars and I would fight against that there's a lot more to what you do but you're not really helping yourself by unveiling a new project a really exciting project literally called the radar Uh, what is that and what does it mean what's it going to be yeah it's it's really not helping brand warville is it and painting a good (laughs) picture so my pr people are going crazy but no so the, the radar is a 60 player kind of scouting guide to you know 60 players at, at the euros um and each each player is kind of kind of a single page full of detail you know including a, a background a bio about them um, them as a person them as a player then you've got a data section as well so what does the data say whether that's you know stats bomb or smart scout or various others and then lastly there's a bit of a transfer section as well where uh, the writers have spoken to agents people around the players camps and they're kind of reporting uh, you know, who could be in for one of the given 60 players who is a good fit for them, who they're speaking to, who they're linked with. And then also perhaps, you know, what the data says about where they should go and who would be a good fit for them as well. So pack full of detail. It's something we've done quite differently as well, where it's it's a PDF. It's not an article on the site. So you access it and you can read it on your phone, on your browser. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a, a lot of work, but I'm really excited to see it's out there in the real world and also see what what people think of it. Well, I can't wait either. We're going to hear about some of those names on this podcast. You're going to be talking us through a player to watch from each team. Uh, Michael giving us more of a tactical overview of what we can expect from them over the next six weeks or so. But a huge piece of work that you've done there. I can't wait to see it. And just more value for athletic subscribers, which is is what you guys excel at. Um, We'll start with Group D. And just to touch on uh, an outside theme of the Euros in general before we get into the individual teams. Michael, in this tournament, teams will be allowed to use a maximum of five substitutes with a sixth allowed exclusively during extra time. So there is a chance that in the knockout stages, teams could be substituting 60% of their outfield players over the course of 120 minutes, which seems uh, pretty pretty lively stuff. Uh, do you expect that to have a big impact on how things go and, and maybe suit 
some teams more than others? Yeah, I think it will. I think it will have a big impact right from the group stage, actually. I think a lot of the bigger sides will try and rotate a lot. I would be very surprised if Southgate played anyone, maybe aside from the centre-backs, for 270 minutes in the group stage. I think we'll see a lot of chopping and changing. Um, and yeah, like you say, could really come into its own in um, in extra time. Obviously, with games going to penalties as well, there is a possibility a manager could, in theory, just bring on five penalty takers, you know, 119 minutes in, which uh, personally I'm all up for. And is there anything in substitutes sort of negatively impacting the, the not the, necessarily the flow of a game but the continuity of a team's performance is that is that something that you buy into I've heard it mentioned a few times that sometimes you know now that we're seeing sometimes six seven subs made by two sides in the space of two or three minutes that actually the match itself gets impacted it takes a while to get going again after that yeah I completely buy into it but I can't entirely say why uh, you know it goes but it's, it's not about the game being stopped because obviously they only have three windows so that doesn't really make a difference but it just seems to be about players getting up to speed and and being tentative when they first come on and yeah I, I do worry that matches do die a little bit when there's so many subs I mean we used to say that about international friendlies didn't we and then they put a limit on the number of subs you can use it used to be 11 subs and now it's up to five subs for a competitive game so yeah I must say I I do prefer three subs rather than five but we can't ignore the fact it will be I think quite influential throughout this tournament. Well I dare say England might be a team that benefit from that with their strength and depth and the potential flexibility that Gareth Southgate could show tactically. We did a whole podcast about England's performance at World Cup 2018, the good things that they did in reaching the semi-finals and maybe some of the things which at the time we glossed over because we as English people and England fans were very excited about but looking back could be improved on in this tournament if they want to go one better. And you did mention that Southgate's maybe tactical inflexibility within games was something that was a bit of an issue actually especially in that semi-final against Croatia now to all intents and purposes ahead of this tournament it seems like both in terms of his selections and also what he's been saying in the press that he wants to be very flexible he wants to switch between a three at the back and flat back four systems do you Michael have a good idea with what five days to go until the tournament starts of how England will approach their group games and which do you think is the best approach if you were in charge? I would be inclined to use four at the back, but I think Southgate would probably start the tournament with a back three with Carl Walker in as the, the right-sided centre-back. Yeah, he seems very determined to use both systems, doesn't he? I mean, there's certain players, Connor Cody in particular, who I can't imagine starting in a, a four-man defence, but is very much there for a back three. Maybe you can say the same for Ben White as well, who's come in for Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, I'm I'm slightly unconvinced by this idea that we are going to play both systems. And yeah, as as we said on that previous podcast, um, the tactical um, acumen, I think, is the the major question mark of of Southgate. I don't think he's been very good in the past at changing his system midway through games. So I would be slightly worried from an English perspective about that. It's not necessarily a huge issue, but in previewing this tournament and maybe being a little closer to England squad discussion and individual player discussion. You know, we've talked about some of the other teams in the other episode, Italy, for example, who appear from what you said to be quite settled, have a pretty good, a pretty good idea of the, the core players who will, uh, who will take to the field and will be a, a key part of, of their squad with England. We're, we're heading into the tournament debating who should be the 24th, 25th, 26th 
members of the squad who generally don't see much game time. On top of that, because of the Chelsea-Manchester City Champions League final, you've got players turning up late to the sort of pre-tournament camp. Uh, the, the, the pre-tournament friendlies have been interesting. There's, there's just been a, a lot of you know, suboptimal things, I guess, for Gareth Southgate. Does it feel like England haven't had necessarily the best build-up to this tournament is what I'm getting at. Do you think it's just a case of us needing something to talk about and things will be all right on the night? No, I, I think you're right. I think it's an issue. I mean, the, it's the fact so many players involved in the Champions League final is good in the sense that they're very good players performing at a high level, but it's been terrible for the lack of preparation. I mean, it's been the most draining season ever. Um, and those players come into it having barely had a break. And you look at the two friendlies... Okay, we were able to to judge a couple of individuals positively or negatively. I think Grealish came out of them well. I think Tyrone Mings really struggled. But, you know, I'm looking for kind of cohesion and combinations between players and those kind of things that I think is, you know, a good sign for an international tournament. We just didn't get the chance to see that. So, yeah, I agree with you, Ali. I don't think it's been great preparation for England. Plenty of positives, though, Tom. Uh, Not least the amount of incredibly exciting young talent that England have coming through. It's a big reason why over half of the squad wasn't involved in, in World Cup 2018, which seems like a quite a big churn over the course of three years. But when you look at the names individually, it's hard not to be pretty excited. I asked you to pick a, a player to watch for each team uh, in this competition. Who on earth did you choose and how did you choose them when it came to England? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Very much, you know, you can take your pick. There's a ton of very young, very exciting talents in this team. And I think many would perhaps go with Phil Foden or, or Mason Mount or, you know, Jane Sancho because he's someone who we don't get to see much of uh, if you focus just on the Premier League. But I think Sancho's teammate, Jude Bellingham, for me is is the one who just you know you have to have to watch have to keep an eye on um, and I think there's a pretty strong case that he starts now as well for England perhaps alongside Declan Rice in a in a four two three one I think Bellingham is the second youngest player at the tournament behind Poland's Kasper Kozlowski who also is age seventeen uh, but is a couple of months younger than than Bellingham but I mean just for his age he looks so matured um, he does so much in possession, out of possession, very energetic, very dynamic, uh, and also gets into the box a lot as well, which for someone who, who positions himself mainly as a kind of deep-lying midfielder is um, just shows like the amount of energy that, that Bellingham has really and, and just that perhaps is something a bit different to what we have at the moment with the other more defensive-minded or I guess less attacking-minded midfielders. For Dortmund this year, he was getting 3.1 touch in the box per 90, which is in the top 5% of all, all, all kind of central and defensive midfielders. So I think there's a bunch of stats you could read about Bellingham just like in every category. He does a lot. He does everything. And he's only probably going to get better and refine his skill set as he ages. But I think for someone who's 17, you maybe wouldn't even class him as, as kind of raw. I think he is kind of a finished article of a player to some extent already or at least he's he's ready for an international tournament and he's only 17 years old so um yeah Bellingham for me is is the one to watch and you could have a, a host of others but I think that he's the uh he could be the star for England of course also in Group D is Scotland there's going to be an incredible clash between England and Scotland at Wembley uh in the second group game and Scotland head into the tournament Michael with Steve Clark in charge, another manager that seems to have some quite interesting decisions to make just in terms of having great strength in certain areas and less so elsewhere, which is quite a classic international manager conundrum. Yes, but on, I think that's why international football is so interesting tactically. It's clearly not on the same level as club football, but you do end up with these big imbalances. Scotland, obviously, 
probably the most stark one in the tournament with Tierney and, and Robertson, both top-class left-backs. Tierney will play left-side centre-back. Robertson will be uh, overlapping more energetically down the left, although they do both pop up in attacking positions at the same time sometimes. Um, I quite like the look of Scotland, actually. I, I've always liked Steve Clark as a, as a manager. I think he's a very, very astute tactician. He makes good changes in, in games, which, as I've said, I'm, I'm never quite convinced about with Southgate. Um, and there's there's some quality elsewhere in this side. I mean, Scott McTominay, I think, has had a really good season for Manchester United. We know about the the quality of John McGinn as well. And although none of the forwards, I would say, are, are anything like top class, if we're being honest, I think there's options there. And I think that Clark will use them intelligently at the right times. Uh, I like Che Adams. I, I wasn't convinced about him when he first came into the Premier League, but I think he's been been good over a couple of seasons of now. Uh, seasons now. Uh, Ryan Fraser, I think, can be very useful. Uh, even in deeper positions, you've got someone like Billy Gilmore, who's started a couple of Premier League games and, and looked all right for Chelsea as well. So I, I like Scotland. I think they've got a good chance of getting out of this group. And I'd fancy them to get a result against England as well. Tom, Michael's mentioned a number of Scottish players there. Who's the one that tickles your fancy? Um, I think it's probably Ryan Christie, really, who's a, a pretty versatile attacker who's been linked with, with Arsenal and a host of other Premier League sides in the past. And, I mean, his, his numbers have taken a bit of a step down this season. Five goals and nine assists, which he was averaging about 0.5 either per 90, which is, is decent. It's good in in, uh, in Scotland. And, yeah, I mean, without the ball, very energetic, very aggressive presser. Someone who, when we look at Smart Scouts, uh, rating for how often he looks to disrupt opposition moves, um, kind of puts an attack or a clearance, a block or a foul at quite a high rate when we look at the minutes that uh, Celtic, who is his club side, uh, the minutes that they're out of possession and how often he looks to do so. So uh, a good mix there of kind of a you know a pressing attacker and he's played multiple positions. I think he lined up as a striker in the 2-2 against the Netherlands last week. Uh, he's also been used in, in midfield and out on the right as well. So yeah, Christie would be potentially the next on the on the kind of production line of Celtic to Premier League. And yeah, I think that he could be an important player as someone who can occupy a bunch of positions. And you know, again with the five subs rule, he might not be the one that goes off, but he's the one who makes way tactically on the pitch to get a, another player in in the in the system somewhere you know in the eleven. So excited to see him play because I've not seen him too much. We've got Croatia in this group as well, Michael, under Zlatko Dalic. They were runners up of course at the World Cup in twenty eighteen. What do they look like three years on? Um I'm not convinced by them to be honest. I, I actually wasn't particularly convinced by them at the World Cup. I know they got to the final but needed penalties against Denmark, needed penalties against Russia. Obviously they beat England on extra time as well. They look a little bit old, if I'm being honest. They have lost a couple of players uh, from 2018. They've brought through some decent players. I mean, Vlasic has done very well as the number 10 for the national side. Obviously, didn't see the best of him at, at Everton. Um, and they, maybe more than any other side in the uh, in the competition, have some very good passing midfielders and I think will insist very much on dominating possession. But there are weaknesses. I think at the back, they look a little bit shaky. Um, in the World Cup, they relied a lot on Vesalico down the right. Um, he has had a, a very difficult campaign, hasn't played very much. Not too sure about Barisic, the left back either. And I think without the fullbacks, they don't get the best from, from the wide midfielders who, who want to be moving inside as well. Petkovic has done all right up front at, at uh, international level. Again, we haven't seen too much of him really at the highest level. Um, and I'm not sure whether he will step up and fill the boots of uh, Mandzukic, who was always uh, very reliable. So I must say, I feel like Croatia are probably on the way down. 
I think they've got a good chance of getting out of the group, but I don't really see them as one of the contenders here. So many big names in midfield over the last decade or so. Modric, of course, Rakitic, Kovacic as well. Even Milan Badelj seems to have been in this squad for an awfully long time. Tom, when it comes to your player to watch, it is a Croatian midfield player, but this is one of the younger ones, an exciting young talent. Yeah, it's Nikola Vlasic, who, who of course, Michael mentioned, used to play for Everton. Uh, and I think he was a bit of a victim of Everton of playing... Um, you know, he's a bit of a ball-playing, dribbling, carrying number 10, and he's playing under Big Sam, and I can't imagine that was too good for, you know, playing or fitting into a system that, that suits him best. Um, so he's, yeah, he's definitely come on a lot more in recent years since he's left Everton. Um, he's been electric, really, at Seska Moscow, and eight non-penalty goals and six assists this season is pretty good as well. Um, but, you know, from watching him and looking at the data, he loves to carry the ball from deep. He loves to cut in from the left. Uh, and he's he's got a bit of a penchant for a long shot as well. Uh, I think he's got a couple in uh, in Euro qualifying from, you know, carrying the ball from deep, beating a player and then slotting it into the bottom corner. So that's one thing to to look out for. Um, and yeah, I, I'm intrigued to see if Vlasic makes a move to Europe off the back of this, just because there aren't a ton of kind of proper number 10s I would say in the top 5 European leagues at the moment and he's probably one of the better ones who are outside of it 19 year old Josko Gvardiol is in the squad as well he, he's I've seen written about as something of a young superstar of the future he'll be joining Leipzig this summer inevitably these days when you learn about a player and you, you wonder what their next move is it's, it's already been confirmed and it's to uh, one of the Red Bull clubs uh, and his nickname is Little Pep because his name Josko Gvardiol is Pretty similar to Josep Guardiola, of course. So there you go. Another one to watch. Just a little bonus from me there if you're interested. Um, Finally, in in Group D, we've got the Czech Republic. Now, Michael, I remember the Czechs very fondly from 2004, where they won all three group games, all three wins with goals in the last 15 minutes. They blitzed Denmark in the next round before coming unstuck against eventual winners Greece in the semi-final, which was a bit of a a letdown. Uh, But it was a side with Poborski and Rosicki, Nedved, of course, Barros and Jan Koller up top. Uh, What does the Czech Republic of 2021 look like? Yeah, I think they're a decent side. I mean, people will know, um, obviously, the two West Ham players have had a very good season. Probably have heard of Patrick Schick up front. They're one of those guys who probably are going to be slightly stronger than the sum of their parts. I think they're... They're well coached, they're well organised, I think they can play a couple of different systems, although I think it'll probably be 4-2-3-1. Um, the results over the last two or three years haven't been great. They did lose um, 5-0 to England um, in one of the qualifiers, although it did look much better in the return game. Um, probably a couple of weaknesses in defence, I would think. So yeah, they are, I'd say, quite unspectacular, but um, certainly won't be pushovers. I think the They'll probably keep things relatively tight, play on the break and yeah, difficult to break down, I would say. Tom, there are always young players getting hyped up ahead of major international tournaments. So that's where you've gone for your Czech player to watch. Yeah, Ali, in the, in the same way that if you're a kind of a very good, young, exciting player, you're off to uh, one of the Red Bull franchises. If you're <laughs> a young or at least exciting Czech player, you're probably going to be joining David Moyes at West Ham. Um, Adam uh, Locek is the player in question who, of course, has been linked to West Ham in recent months. And he's someone who uh, is a very exciting attacking player, um, arguably has outgrown the Czech First League, uh, scoring 
14 non-penalty goals this season and, and seven assists as well, which I think on a penalty basis is 1.25 of either, which again is just, yeah, he needs, a, he needs a bigger challenge arguably. But yeah, again, looking at the numbers, watching him, he's a fantastic one-on-one dribbler, extremely quick, uh, able to play on, on either of the wings or up front. And yeah, I think that he's probably one of the the few younger players who will have kind of a big impact and a big chance to play a lot of minutes in this in this tournament um so yeah excited to see Locek both uh, at this summer's tournament and probably at the London Stadium next season as well this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Nice. Group E now and Michael in your preview piece for The Athletic, this was kind of summed up as really the group for off-field drama pre-tournament. Yeah, there's been various uh, interesting things. Managerial drama with Spain and Slovakia and Poland. Drama over the kind of most established player in terms of Sergio Ramos being left out in terms of Zlatan Ibrahimovic coming back for Sweden and then having to drop out injured. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot going on with these sides and uh, weren't necessarily the easiest to preview in terms of uh, you know past results and, and past selections and that kind of thing. We'll start with Spain. Uh, Luis Enrique is their manager. Do Spain suffocate teams with possession like those triumphant Spain sides from 2008-2012 or is this a, uh, an evolution in terms of, of how they play? I would kind of compare the job that Luis Enrique has done with the job he did at Barcelona in the sense that when he took over it was at Barcelona it was still 4-3-3 it was still very Barcelona but it wasn't quite Guardiola's Barcelona and I'd say the same here um, they are still possession based they still will dominate the ball I don't think that they are as patient as they used to be he's tried to bring in players who offer more running in behind um, the likes of Ferran Torres has, has done very well for Spain scored a hat-trick in that 6-0 win over Germany um, Adama Traore maybe is a um, kind of uncharacteristic player compared to the Spain of 10 years ago all about pace as we know so yeah I think really the, the key is how quickly they get the ball forward and, and how well they use it on the break because I think they want to do that a little bit more than they did in uh, in their peak years if you like I watched their game against Portugal uh, their warm-up match and I was struck by just how many chances this team were able to create for Alvaro Morata, who was playing up top, and how uncomfortable he looked with those chances. It, it reminded me a little bit of Timo Werner this season, who, you know, in, in fairness, we have spoken about the value of Werner and how his movement is so good that it allows him to be on the end of those chances. I wonder if there's a, a touch of the Werners with Morata. I can imagine after that finishing display, and it was a poor finishing display in the warm-up match against Portugal, that there are probably some questions about whether he'll start their games at the Euros. Gerard Moreno would be another option of Villarreal. Does that feel like one of the big question marks over this Spain side at the moment? Yeah, I think so. To be honest... There's a lot of question marks about the Spain squad. I don't think there's that much difference in terms of quality between the first 11 and the second 11 in some ways. And yeah, we're starting to see things take shape now after the friendlies, but it's been very difficult really to to name many players that were nailed on to get into this side. Probably Ramos was one of the few and then obviously didn't make it because of because of injury. I mean, they've, they've certainly got the options. They've got options all over the pitch. They've also got a, player, a, a couple of players who wouldn't have been in the picture a year ago, 
Um, I'm thinking of Moreno, as you mentioned, Ali, uh, and Pedri as well, who, who's really come from nowhere to be a, a, a key part of the Barcelona side and, and potentially a key player here. They are a little bit unpredictable, I think. They will they will fare well in terms of getting out of the group stage, but I think the group stage as well is going to be about Luis Enrique tweaking his team, trying different options in certain positions, and who knows what their first eleven will be once we get to the knockout stage. Yeah, I should say I was quite encouraged by the extent to which they created chances um, in open play in that game against Portugal. So that's something to watch for sure. Tom, you mentioned that in your piece, The Radar, uh, you looked at all facets of a player, including their, their backstory. And the player you've picked out as your Spanish player to watch, you know, in Spanish football terms, has had a very unusual pathway, uh, which makes him, I think, a really interesting young player. Yeah, absolutely. I think Danny almost had a, a really interesting career up to this point where very talented young kid, but had to get a move away to Dinamo Zagreb to really kind of move his stock higher and, uh, and get noticed and get game time and he was he was the standout player for his Zagreb sides for a couple of seasons and then it's again obvious that that Leipzig were the team who were going to pick him up and I think even from there um, Julian Nagelsmann has used him all over the pitch and you look at his kind of position map and I think that's the the graphic we went for on his page in the radar and you see that he's just literally been used attacking mid left mid right mid left ring left wing right wing like it's it's everywhere so it's hard to really nail down his position for uh, his, you know, his club side, but um, for the national team, I think he'll be, uh, you know, obviously an attack-minded midfielder. Um, I think he's fantastic technically, um, very, very good striker for the ball, very good passing range, and I mean, very, very useful in tight spaces as well. Which I think for for the striker that is, you know, Morata up front, who's someone who who's you know premier skill really is is runs and 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 making runs onto through balls and things like that behind the defence. I think Elmo could be a, a really useful partner for him uh, from a bit of a deeper position. So. Um, yeah, excited to see where where Olmo goes from here because I think that uh, from again from the radar he was linked to to Spurs and they would decide to go with um, Lochelso at the time instead. Uh, I can imagine that you know he's someone who a few Premier League clubs are keeping their eye on because he is that kind of top tier of attacking midfielder, perhaps just below the you know the likes of De Bruyne and and that kind of caliber but he's not too far away Slovakia in this group as well Michael their manager is Stefan Tarkovic now they kind of squeaked in I suppose through the playoffs they beat the Republic of Ireland on penalties and then they beat Northern Ireland after extra time Uh, what sort of an impact might they have on group E I must say I'm struggling to make a case for them having much of an impact here Ali Uh, like you say weren't particularly impressive in qualification the recent record against the good sides is pretty poor. Um, I think they're going to play deep, play probably 4-1-4-1. Kuchka, central midfielder, has occasionally done very well when I've seen him in Syria. We know about Marek Hamsik. Um, he has been in Sweden for the last few months trying to regain his fitness ahead of this tournament, which is slightly odd in itself and obviously coincidental they're playing Sweden in this group. I can't really see them causing many surprises, to be honest. I think they are... One of the less interesting sides at the tournament, I'm afraid. Sorry, Slovakia. One of my great friends has a great friend who is Slovakian and a huge football fan. So I did want to get an insight into how he was feeling ahead of this tournament. And the upshot was, by our standards, this is a very average Slovak team run by a very average Slovak manager. I honestly do not expect much from them. So not a huge amount of excitement coming from within the nation uh, itself, or at least not with that individual. Um, Tom, uh, Marek Hamšík, interesting in so many ways. I suppose um, I remember him 
obviously being such a star for, for Napoli over such a long period of time. What sort of a player is he for Slovakia? Because as we know, often when you have a high-profile player like this, they have to take on a, a different role in order to help their national team when they're not maybe surrounded by players of a similar class. Yeah, Hamšík's a really interesting one. I mean, definitely for for both Slovakia, where I was looking, you know, in the prep for this podcast, at how he's done in in recent, you know, fixtures just leading up to this tournament. And I don't think he's anywhere he's been anywhere near the squad in the friendlies. So whether he's been wrapped up in cotton wool and put in a, uh, you know, somewhere of room temperature just so he's ready for that first match um, remains to be seen. But yeah, I think that he's someone who, at least in recent seasons, has gone from a player who was a you know, kind of an all-round attacking and creative force for Napoli, and I think he's the second highest goal scorer for the club behind Dries Mertens uh, and ahead of you know Diego Maradona as well. And he's become more of a kind of more steady recycling midfielder, who's someone who kind of keeps the game relatively simple, keeps the ball moving around, but isn't getting into those attacking positions as much as he as he once was. I mean, since the start of 2018, he's got five goals and three assists in 59 starts. So that's you know, well, less than one. Less than a goal and assist every ten games, which obviously is not a great return, and those weren't the numbers that he was putting up previously in his career. So maybe it's a, a sign of decline, and perhaps it is that. But then again, if you move to the Chinese league, you'd think that his attacking and creating numbers would kind of say sustained from where they were earlier in his career. So I think that's probably because he's positioned a bit deeper in midfield, and he's he's one of these kind of more sitting midfielders who's keeping play ticking over. So Hamšík's not the player that we included in in the radar for Slovakia, but I think that he's certainly one to watch just because of you know how does he play now versus you know his uh, the creative output and the creative player that he was at Napoli uh, in his pomp a couple of seasons ago. Michael, we got Poland in this group as well. How are Poland shaping up? ahead of this Euros campaign. Yeah, another one of the sides in this group who changed manager, Paolo Sosa came in. Um, I think they might be all right, actually. Obviously, Robert Lewandowski is probably the most established centre-forward in this tournament. Um, the system that they play is interesting. They're probably going to start with something that looks like 4-4-2. But they tend to play Zielinski from the left, who uh, moves inside to become a number 10. That means the left-back Ribas moves forward on the overlap and then the, the right-back on the other side tucks in. So a little bit like Italy, we mentioned earlier, start with a four but end up shifting to a three in possession and end up with something like a, a front five, which tends to be the, the way a lot of the club teams, the good club sides work. But you don't really see it so much at international level because uh, obviously less time to work on tactics and that kind of thing. But I kind of like Poland. As I say, as I mentioned earlier, they're one of the sides I'd have down as unpredictable. I wouldn't be surprised if it all completely falls apart and Sosa is kind of never allowed back into Poland again. Obviously, he's only uh, started working there recently. Um, but also wouldn't be surprised if they make a decent run to the quarterfinals or something. But I will look forward to their games. I like, obviously, Lewandowski. But I like Zielinski a lot as well. I think he's the kind of player who could have a really good tournament. Tom, why don't you pick up there? You can tell me exactly how much we love Zielinski. He's your player to watch as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's you know, the calibre of player who I'm kind of surprised that he's not moved away from Napoli at, at some point in his career. Uh, I always thought he had a nice mix of ability on the ball, you know, an eye for a pass and could also score goals as well, which you can imagine slots into many a, a Premier League side. And yeah, I mean, he's coming into the the tournament off the back of a career best eight goals and, and 10 assists this season for, for Napoli. And I mean, he's... His underlying numbers of XG and XA haven't really shifted that much, which makes me think that he's you know he's been a bit lucky and nothing kind of structurally has changed about his game. He's not just become a, an excellent creator or a really you know keen runner into the box or scorer. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot to like about him. I think he's 
one of the more dynamic midfield options that, that Poland have got. Um, and, you know, they're quite well stocked up front, of course. Lewandowski, I think Milik is okay, not great. And I think that, you know, behind him you've got Krikowiak, um, who I think when we saw him in the in the Premier League and in previous tournaments, he's been, been labelled as a bit more of a midfield destroyer. Now, I think there's a bit more to him than that, but Zielinski definitely is, is far more attack-minded. So, yeah, excited to see what he brings to Poland's midfield. They are all three of them joined by Sweden to finish off Group E. I have to admit, Michael, reading your piece and a couple of others as well leading up to this podcast, that bloody dark horse radar is, is bleeping again. Yeah, I mean, um, similar to Denmark in a way, in the sense I, I think they will keep things tight and, and play on the break, but I'm actually more positive about Sweden than I am when I wrote the preview because it now looks like they're going to change system slightly and play a front two of Alexander Izak, who's had a brilliant season in La Liga, um, and then play Dejan Kulusevski of Juventus up front alongside him. And that just strikes me as a bit more exciting than what their alternative was, which is playing uh, Marcus Berg, who's still around, I think, 34 now. Obviously not the most uh, quick player on the break. But, I mean, they're very they're very Swedish. I mean, they are 4-4-2. The midfield is very narrow. They still have Sebastian Larsson knocking around. I think he's going to play on the right flank. And Emil Forsberg as well is, is maybe the other player to mention who um, is one of those players, he's, he's never quite done it at international level the same way he has with um, with his club. You know, he's been very good at times for, for uh, Leipzig. Um, but his last few months, I think, for Sweden, he's, he's looked much better. And yeah, I, I agree with you, Ali. I think Dark Horse could be a good shout for them. And yeah, I think they will get out of this group. Alex Isak has got to be the one for the radar, Tom, surely. I mean, he's only 21 years old. He's already played 22 times for Sweden, scoring five goals. And I think at senior club level as well, he's probably around 140 games already, age 21, which for a young striker is pretty incredible. And on top of that, in three different top divisions across Europe, what an amazing, amazingly interesting player and someone who could absolutely explode in this tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's another example of the sheer quality of the the Dortmund scouting machine as well. Now, of course, he doesn't play for Dortmund at the moment, but they still picked him up as a as a teenager playing for AIK, I think, out in Sweden. And you know, they made that bet. It's come off in the long run, maybe not at their club, but it does show that they have a, a great eye for talent. But yeah, I think Isaac's in the conversation to be one of the the best under twenty one strikers in Europe. Um, probably the best after Haaland really and he's got a lot of similarities with the Norwegian too I mean he gets a lot of his touches within the box he gets a ton of shots away as well given the number of touches that he has but his act's slightly different where he loves to carry the ball and take players on uh, something of a of a winger at times the position that he takes up either on the left or the right he kind of seemingly floats around quite a lot for Sociedad and he, but it, you know overall he gets into really good goal scoring positions I mean he gets 0.57 non-penalty XG per 90 which in La Liga this year was third uh, behind I mean Lionel Messi of, of course of Barcelona and Yusuf and Nasiri of Sevilla were first uh, ahead of him tied so it really shows that there's a lot to like about his game uh, and yeah intrigued to see how well he links up with uh, like Michael said with Forsberg and I think Victor Clayson as well as another interesting player who um, put up great numbers for, for I think for Krasnodar for a few seasons and moved to them after the Euros last time I think for around two or three million euros and again at the time that was one that was picked up by a, a player picked up by a few analysts as a you know great value deal so yeah I think that He's one to watch out for as well, but Isaac really is is where the hype's at, and I think he'll be playing at a, a, a bigger team. Would you, you know, with respect to Sociedad in the next couple of seasons? 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's finish strong with Group F, which is the official group of death. Now, that phrase loses its value slightly when three of the four teams could and perhaps will progress. But of course, we have got in this group France, who are the, according to FIFA and their world ranking system, the second best team in the world. We've got Portugal, who are number five, and Germany, who have actually dropped to number 12 uh, in the FIFA world rankings. Let's start with with France because they're the favourites to win the tournament. They are the world champions, uh, clearly the team to beat under Didier Deschamps. Let's start with France because they're the world champions. They're the favourites for this tournament. Incredible squad, clearly the team to beat. Michael, what I'd like to know is how has Didier Deschamps got them set up for this? Has he stick with the same formation or has he tweaked things ahead of this tournament? Uh, very similar to the World Cup. It's a 4-2-3-1, but with completely different wide midfielders. So one of them is a midfielder tucking in from the left. That used to be Matuidi. It's now probably going to be either Rabiot or even Pogba, who's played in that kind of role for Manchester United a bit. And obviously on the right, they have Mbappe, who is uh, more of a forward than a wide midfielder. Deschamps has experimented a little bit with a diamond midfield. When you actually look at it on paper, that's actually not a really big departure from how they've been playing, really. I think it, it pretty much looks like the same system. Um, there are a couple of changes from the World Cup. Obviously, Mtiti's no longer there. It's going to be Kimpembe at the back. Um, as I say, Rabio is, is in contention to play the Matuidi role, although it could be Toliso, who came in for Matuidi for suspension in the semi-final, I think it was, at the World Cup. And then the big one up front, obviously, is Benzema coming back for Giroud. I must say I have my reservations about that. I'm slightly surprised Deschamps has done it. Um, but we all know that's an upgrade in quality, particularly in terms of goal scoring. Giroud does everything but score goals prolifically. Certainly that was the case of the World Cup, probably being slightly harsh on him because he has scored 40-odd international goals. But we know that Benzema can get goals out of nothing in a way that Giroud probably can't. So that makes them even better. Yeah, for me, they are... I mean, if this was if this was a 2014 league system, I think France would win this by quite a long way. Obviously, being a knockout tournament, you never know. But I think they are very, very strong favourites. Um, and I'm slightly surprised they're not considered greater favourites when you look at the uh, the betting and everything, because I think they're just much better balanced than uh, England or Portugal or anyone else. Tom, you've picked... Kylian Mbappe for our player to watch. He has clearly ripped up Liga. He has ripped up the Champions League. He is a World Cup winner, age 22. And you're expecting more of the same this summer. Yeah, it's kind of hard to look past Mbappe really, isn't it? Is, is the one to watch. Um, I think that he's, he's versatile in the way that they can use him coming off the left um, in a 4-3-3 or um, partner with, with Benzema at top with Griezmann in behind, which I think they did against Wales and um, it's just those little moments of magic with Mbappe which really set him apart and make him a really fun player to watch. I mean, in the the Wales game, there's a lovely example where I think two Wales players come out to press him and he manages to backheel it between them to Anton Griezmann, who's then in in you know acres of space. Well, it's, it's meters of space, but um, he's he's in space and he's able to then kind of bend it into the top corner from there and I think make it two 0 to to France at that point. So yeah, I mean, there's there's the goals, but there's also I mean. Speaking of goals, he gets... But in terms of the numbers with Mbappe, I mean, he scored 0.7 non-penalty goals per 90, which, again, top 5% of, of forwards. 
Um, he's touched in the box. I don't think anyone in Europe gets more than than he does with PSG at 9.7 per 90 and he completes more dribbles than than any other forward as well at 3.3 per 90 as well so there's a you know we we all kind of know Mbappe's game but it's more trying to understand like where his ceiling is because after every season after every tournament I still don't think that we've truly seen the best of him yet and maybe we see another improvement of his game this summer. Germany are in this group as well. It's Yogi Love's last tournament as Germany manager. Now, Michael, I look at the squad and I kind of nod my head at some of the names in there. Plenty of, of big names in this Germany squad. But what I did just mention they've dropped to 12th in FIFA's world rankings. And it's hard not to notice when you read up on them that just doesn't feel like there's a particularly good atmosphere around the place why is that i haven't been playing well really i mean lost 6-0 to spain i think sums it up but there's really a sense that yogi love's gone on at least one tournament too many germany have evolved their game over the years obviously went from being very kind of boring and efficient to being very good on the counter-attack and now very much a possession-based side when i watch them they've just moved the ball so slowly um, I think they miss someone who can really kind of take the ball from the Gundogan and Cruz and Goretzka positions into the attacking areas. Obviously, a lot has been said about Messi over uh, Ozil over the years in terms of you know his club form and in terms of some off the field things in in a, a Germany sense. But I don't really see they have a player who has replaced him in terms of his uh, chance creation. Um, and I think they've got a long-standing issue at fullback as well. Left back, I don't think they've got anyone who's really impressed for the national side. The right-back row, I think, will probably go to Kimmich, um, who prefers playing central midfielder, but I think they've got lots of central midfielders and not many good right-backs, so I think he he has to play there, surely. It's a kind of alarm in 2014 situation, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, maybe we're being a little bit too negative. They do still have great midfielders, a couple of solid centre-backs, obviously Manuel Neuer is still in goal, um, and some very good attacking options as well, but... The more you watch them, the more they are unconvincing. Tom, you've picked out someone who is not that recognisable in a Germany shirt, but could be a breakout star if Germany are to progress through this tournament. Yeah, Michael mentioned that there's not too much depth in the the fullback positions, and I tend to agree, and I think that's probably why we might see them play a a variation of a three at the back with with wing-backs this summer. Um, And Robin Gersens, who plays for Atalanta, is the one who will be playing on on the left, I'm pretty sure. Um, Extremely attacking you know, wing back on the left. I don't think he's a great one-on-one defender, and I think that um, Gasparini at Atalanta has carved out a role perfectly suited for him, which exposes his strengths and kind of hides his weaknesses and doesn't rely on him having to do too much defending because I don't think he's a great one-on-one tackler and I don't think he defends space too well at all either. But he's a great uh, attacker in the way that he doesn't really... He's not, he's not the best passer, I don't think. I think he's an okay crosser, but I think his real skill is making those kind of late-time runs to the back post, kind of unmarked. There's those blindside runs, which none of the defenders are really looking out for, and him being picked out from there. So I think that's one thing to to look out for, really. Uh, and also, I mean, he will look to create crosses with, with cutbacks... Uh, sorry, create chances with cutbacks and crosses, but I'm not sure how much of that we'll see just because of the sheer number of kind of smaller, more mobile attackers that, that Germany have, which makes me think that if you've got a team with Serge Gnabry and, and Leroy Sané, you're probably best to try and hit teams on the break um, unless you use Thomas Muller and try and uh, try and carve them open with his uh, his passing from, from midfield. Next up, we've got Portugal. Now, they are the holders, of course. They won in, in 2016, beating France after extra time in the final. Didn't actually win a single one of their group games in that tournament. So it was a, a strange route to glory. But their manager, Fernando Santos, Michael, I mean... I'm sort of imposing this headache on him and, and I'm sure he's 
he's got this sorted. But looking at the squad, I mean, some of the some of the names in an attacking sense are incredible. When you have Cristiano Ronaldo, Diego Jota, João Felix, Bruno Fernandes, Bernardo Silva, how do you go about fitting them all into a, a cohesive side that, that might win this tournament? <laughs> it's a good question. I think the answer is you don't. I think you'll play four of them in a 4-2-3-1. Ronaldo will start up front. Fernandez will start as the attacking midfielder. I think Bernardo will play on the right. And you've probably got a debate between Jao Felix and uh, Diego Jota for the final position. I think there will be rotation. Um, you know, I think they'll be chopping and changing. I think we might see Andre Silva at some point, who's a proper number nine, uh, maybe in tandem with Ronaldo because Ronaldo doesn't get subbed off very often. I mean, Portugal are a really good side. Um, they've got excellent fullbacks in Jao Cancelo and, and Rafael Guerrero. The back, Ruben Diaz, we know he's had a great season. Pepe um, in those Champions League matches, particularly against Juventus, still looked very good. Central midfield is is maybe the one area I'm not entirely sold on. Um, although Portugal tend to kind of just have players who who know their roles and keep keep the ball you know moving and keeping things ticking over. And I think with these fullbacks, really the central midfielders will be expected to stay in position and, and protect the defence because. Much as I like Diaz and Pepe, I don't think you want them dragged out at the back. You don't want them covering too much space. But yeah, Portugal are a really good side. My, my only reservation about them is that they're in a tough group. Um, but uh, yeah, as they showed five years ago, you don't always need to finish in the top two to get through it. But they are, it's a strange thing because France and, and Portugal are in the same group, obviously. But I think on paper, they are the two strongest sides in this competition. Ooh, nice. Uh, Tom, Michael just said he, he's not sold on the, the centre of the park. Why don't you sell... Renato Sanchez to him. Yeah, I think um, I think the value in Sanchez really is just because you look at the other options they have in terms of Danilo Pereira, William Carvalho, Sergio Oliveira, Joao Palinha and Juan Moutinho. And out of those, I don't really think anyone is that strong a runner. I don't think there's, there's much they offer physically where they can move about the pitch either with or without the ball. And I think that's something that Renato Sanchez offers in spades really and it's something that he really excelled at for, for Lille in their title winning campaign this year that he, he really likes to run with the ball at his feet. He can take players on in the middle of the park and I think I somewhat agree with Michael as well that maybe that's not what you need when you have the centre-back pairing that you do when you have full-backs that are so attacking. But I think you know in a tournament like this at times you might need that kind of option off the bench uh, and Sanchez will definitely offer that um, for, for Portugal. Last up, Hungary. Marco Rossi in charge. It's an incredibly tasty looking group, this, isn't it? I mean, can Hungary, Michael, add some spice to proceedings? Can they upset the apple cart and any other food related puns that I can think of? <laughs> I think there's only one chance, only one way they can. And that is they have home advantage. Um, and it's set to be the only stadium with 100% capacity. We'll have to see whether that actually turns out to be the case. But I think that could be quite a trump card. I mean, how many of these players have played in front of a 100% capacity stadium over the last year? Pretty much none, I would guess, unless I've missed some kind of technicality or someone's playing in some strange country that I I can't think of. But, I mean, that could be a factor. Uh, You know, the home advantage, I think, shouldn't be discounted. Aside from that, I I don't think they're a particularly good side. I think probably it's going to be a 3-5-2. They have decent width. They've got options going forward. None of them real top-class players. I just think the group really is, is really difficult. And because of that, they are the side most like, uh, least likely to be seen in the knockout stage. Tough scene. Tom, uh, of the Hungarian players who, even if the side might struggle, could shine, could 
pick up interest from elsewhere. Who have you picked out on that front? I've picked out uh, Attila Salai, um, or Saloy, who's a centre-back for, for Hungary, one who plays for Fenerbahce. Mainly, I mean, the, the issue is with, with the Hungary side that I think Dominic Zobosalai would, of course, been the player of interest because he's the one who practically dragged, uh, he literally dragged Hungary up the pitch and scored the, the match-winning goal to seven to Euros, and sadly he's been um, ruled out of the competition through injury. So I think Saloy is, is an interesting alternative because he's he's a defender obviously not as uh, as sexy a position um but i think he's a going to be a pretty important one for them um left-footed comfortable on the, on the left side of defense um and he's been described in in the radar by mark Carey as uh, harry Maguire, but not quite as refined which i thought was quite <laughs> a succinct way of of summing up his game i mean he's he's a very big guy um pretty solid jeweler in the air on the ground and yeah probably someone as well who's a decent passer doesn't quite get the credit like Maguire for for being able to progress the ball forwards at quite the rate that he does um so yeah i thought that was a, a quite a nice comp to have so so yeah, uh, Salai for us is the uh, the one to watch out for. And that brings us to the end of the Zonal Marking Podcast, Euro 2020 preview. This episode being about groups D, E and F implies the presence, and I can confirm it, of a separate episode talking about groups A, B and C. You can find that on this podcast feed. And Tom, as we've mentioned at a few times on this episode, has just finished a huge body of work and it would only be fair if we all go and read it. The Radar is its official name. Uh, It's out in the week leading up to the Euros. Make sure that you download it all the way on the fact that it's an actual PDF rather than your average athletic piece, I think goes to show just how much work has gone into it. I can't wait to see it. I think it's going to look brilliant and read brilliantly as well Uh, Michael thank you so much for your time I know you're going to be super busy during the Euros as well we will be here throughout the Euros we're going to do a special episode at the end of each game week at the end of each round of fixtures so after every team has played one game two games at the end of the group stages uh, at the end of the round of 16 quarterfinals semi-final and final we will be both recapping and previewing picking out things of interest to Tom and to Michael and we cannot wait for it so we hope you've enjoyed uh, this zonal marking euros preview do sign up to The Athletic if you haven't already and make the most of a brilliant sign-up offer. Just £1 a month for the first six months of your annual subscription if you head to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. That's where you can read Tom and Michael and their uber-talented and hard-working colleagues as well. So join us throughout the Euros. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And we'll talk again next week. The Athletic.